Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Tom Pellero, chief executive and, and inventor at Style Ideas, a cosmetics business that he co-founded with Lord Truga. Tom, hello. 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 Hi there. Thank you for coming on the program uh, today. Now, normally we charge headlong into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak, uh, we probably should address how this has affected your business and your industry sector. Yes, it was certainly oh, we're sort of uh, eight weeks now in as we as we stand, um, and it's been an in, it's just an insane period. Um, we work in the in the beauty uh, and accessories area, and sort of cosmetics and cleaning makeup brushes and electric toothbrushes and that sort of area, um, which has always been pretty online dominated actually for us. Uh, and so, whilst for example, you know, a lot of the boot stores have been open, and we've seen a big fall off in there. You know, a lot of the online uh, has sort of taken over so it was absolutely terrifying at first and some of our biggest customers completely closed all their doors mm. and we had to re-examine a huge part of our of our business um, but as we stand we are one of I think the lucky ones really uh, and I'm very glad I don't run a restaurant or a chain of cinemas or these sort of things it must have been incredibly difficult times. Of course do you feel that this is going to have any sort of a long-term effect on your business or do you think you're pretty much in the clear? goodness i only i only wish i know i knew rather every day i i am now completely obsessed with reading the news i was always pretty keen on it but uh, but certainly because uh, things change so so quickly it's very difficult to to say at the moment um Christmas, Christmas presents is a hugely important aspect of our of our business, uh, and so we're kind of trying to work out at the moment, you know, in what form will Christmas come? Um, you know, will people be allowed to go into stores and, and, and shops? Will you know, be unfortunately, it's very likely to be a large number of people unemployed for for Christmas, or will we turn around quickly? Uh, and then also, you know, I think over the last ten years, we've seen an increasing number of people giving Christmas presents as theatre tickets and as you know, um, restaurant meals and those sort of services or experience things, but that's unlo- that might not be possible as Christmas presents this year. So perhaps people will turn to to products as as a Christmas gift mm-hmm. uh, rather than these services. And what effect might that have? Oh, it's so incredibly difficult. Of course. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question: What does the word leader mean to you? What is the word leader? Um, you know, a leader, leader to me, I, I'm a big sports fan, sports player as a, as a young child as a, you know, in university. Uh, so for me, the sort of the leader is the, the strong individual on the, on the sports, on the sports field. Is that, you know, I think we've got Andrew Strauss on, you know, he's one of my, my heroes as, mm-hmm. a, as a leader. And that, that, that instantly comes to my mind. Um, but I think also leaders has, has changed quite a bit over possibly my life. I'm, I'm a very, much more of a softly spoken leader. Um, my business partner, Lord Sugar, is a very, you know, strong leader, strong in his convictions, strong in his uh, in opinions. And I'm much, much more questioning. Uh, and sometimes I even question, am, am I how good a leader or am I? 
Now, of course, having that balance uh, with a company is incredibly important. Uh, you alluded to it there. Uh, let's uh, talk about your uh, past experiences. Of course, you are uh, someone who has competed on and won uh, The Apprentice. Uh, that's how you came to become business partners with Lord Sugar. Tell us a bit about that experience. Yes, yeah, so you talk about leaders. You know, in the Apprentice, you have the project manager. The project manager is the is the leader of the team, um, and uh, very often the, the the project manager is the one who gets fired uh, the most regularly from any team. So, in in the Apprentice, you sort of almost don't really want to be the leader mm. um, because you're the most likely to to leave the process. The sort of during the Apprentice, it's it's a tricky mix because you know you you're trying to make sure you make it through, but you're also trying to show that you have credibility and really something to offer. Uh, the Apprentice show itself I was, has been incredibly good to me. You know, this business partner opportunity with Lord Sugar has completely changed my life uh, for the benefit. I talk to Lord Sugar very regularly. He was actually on the phone to me about half an hour ago. Um, I would not want to do The Apprentice again, though. It was a <laughs> horrific experience, absolutely horrible, horrible experience. Um, but I did learn a, a huge amount from it, and I've been very, very fortunate as a beneficiary. As have all the all the winners have been very, you know, been hugely successful as a result. You know, The Apprentice has been very, very good for all of us. Now, of course, uh, young people listening to the program should know that the world of business is a bit different than how it's portrayed in the, uh, the Apprentice. What are some of the key differences in the way that employees are dealt with uh, in real life as opposed to its TV incarnation? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the Apprentice is a, is a representation of a, of a part of business. One of the things that's sort of very strange or amazing about the Apprentice is that business often takes a long time you know, it's not a matter of days, hours. It's kind of over the course of the next year, 10 years, 100, 100 years kind of thing. And whereas The Apprentice, you get feedback almost, you know, within six hours, you get feedback about whether that decision you took was a good one or a, or a bad one, mm. um, which means you learn very, very quickly in that. And I, I do quite a bit of work with, with university graduates and school leavers. And, you know, the transition from education to business is can be very hard because in, in business, you know, in, sorry, in, in education, you get exams quite regularly, you get regular feedback, whereas in business, things can take so, so long. And you also can be involved in just a small part. So you, it, it can be quite tricky to learn as fast as you need to learn uh, in business. So business and the apprentice, very, very difficult, different. You couldn't treat, you know, the apprentice is often very short-term things. You're trying to get the deal on that book or whatever you've got to buy because you've got to sell it the following day. You know, whereas in business with my suppliers, we have to be much more kind of partnership led than, mm -hmm. than purely just getting the best deal on the day. Now, uh, we were talking about the bridging the gap between the uh, school and the workplace. Uh, what are some of the most important key tips that a young uh, school leaver or university graduate should know before entering the world of work? It's a really good question, and there are some fantastic, you know, I would really get out and listen to as many different people as you can. Things like these podcasts are perfect examples of, of learning from other people's sort of mistakes or lessons learned. Um, my little piece might be to say at the very beginning, and maybe even for the first 10 years, be focusing on what you can learn 
from a job, what you can learn from a role, mm-hmm. rather than what you can earn. Mm-hmm. Because the first 10 years especially, you, know, you just want to try and learn as much as you possibly can and don't be worried quite so much about what you can earn. Because the likelihood is actually if you learn, 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 you might you know, accelerate very quickly on the, on the pay scale over, over time. Um, I certainly had, I, can, I think I had 10 different jobs uh, post uh, my sort of 10 years of, of graduating in, in lots of different things, in consulting, in developing developing products and developing businesses, all these sort of things. Now, I think my family thought I'd completely lost it and I was going to end up destitute. Um, and applying to the apprentice probably saved me in that respect. But please focus on what you can learn rather than what you can earn. Now, unfortunately, our time together is winding down. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Style Ideas? Very good question. So, as so we're you know, we're, we're doing some, uh, we're preparing our big Christmas offerings uh, this year. We're, we're hopefully about to do a gigantic uh, deal with a big American retailer, which will eventually propel us uh, forward again. Um, we've got some great ideas coming for for next year, uh, but also our, our teeth whitening uh, style smart brand is really building, um, and we're getting ready for that for for Christmas and the sort of uh, marketing that the messages that we're putting together for for this Christmas. So um, the existing products, the, the tooth whitening products, and then and then more products for for next year. But whilst also always concentrating on you know, making sure you you stay in business because this is incredibly a uh, difficult time, mm. uh, and you do have to be careful because the most important thing is that I'm still trading in in one year's time. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I'd love to have you back on when things get back to more of an even keel. Tom, thank you. Thank you. That was Tom Pellerou. Chief Executive and Inventor at Style Ideas. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection... was it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... You know, I've only got injured in the nets, and 
and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively, relatively old is probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. 
And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, 
sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um 
and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know, Ebert, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis 
to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, th- we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, Mm -hmm. potentially a a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, We need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, 
just the the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.